Amen, amen. Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday night service here for those in person and those online. Welcome. A couple announcements as you're opening up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13 as we will be picking back up there where we left off. Um, two things. One is the one of the outreaches in the, this community that we support is CareNet. Uh, it's their annual fundraising banquet, so make sure you grab a hold of that. It's coming up in September 28th um, and also September 29th locally here, September 29th uh, at 6 p.m. So grab that and take that with you and, and uh, think about sharing and, and we have people here that were um, ministering in that ministry as well. So it's a great, great ministry to save lives. Also, ladies, uh, Tuesday night Bible study for ladies. A new one starts up September 12th. It's coming quick, it's right around the corner. And there's two times. There's a morning time from 9.30 to 11.30. That's with child care in that morning session. And there's an evening session at 6.30 p.m. And that does not have child care in the evening time. Workbooks are available. You're doing a study on the life of Joseph. So see Kathleen and she will make sure you have that workbook and I think the workbook is five dollars so uh, it's just a yes five dollars so grab that and ladies um, invite a friend to come join you at one of those times and again you don't have to stick to one or the other but typically you get you find that niche if it's going to be a night or, or morning but no if something changes you have those two options because the it's the same teaching uh, it's lesson for that day so it's a, a great and versatile for you uh, with that. But let us open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you and praise you for this evening. And we thank you, Lord, to be able to come through a busy week so far and, and be able to come and just sit and be still, to be fed spiritually, to be able to be, uh, your word to be illuminated by your spirit to our hearts of us so that we can hear and grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are, but also to change us and mold us and shape us, just Lord, teach us through your word. We thank, we're so thankful and so grateful for your word, Lord, to, to be able to, to instruct us, um, to correct us, <laughs> rebuke us, uh, but also comfort us and encourage us by the way, only by the spirit that can happen. So as we open up your word, may we just be so focused in on hearing your voice this evening. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and we said amen. 1 Samuel chapter 13, titled Saul's Spiral Down. If you remember, we just came through a point of a tremendous uh, moment uh, of change in the life of the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. The people asked for a king, went to Samuel, the last prophet, and said, we want a king, just like all the other nations. Samuel immediately turned to God and said, God, what do you say about this? And God said, okay, let them have their heart's desire. If that's what they want, they want to, they don't they don't settle. They're not they're not content with me leading them as their king, as their as their god. Then we'll give them what they want. And God's intent is to take this moment of what they're asking for, and to use it to correct them and to change them and mold them. Because God knew what was going to happen if they wanted to follow a, uh, a human king. It was going to bring much challenges. And God gave Samuel the words to tell him, this is exactly what was going to happen if this is what, if this is what you want. And they still wanted that king. And we saw last week where now Saul is recognized not only in name of being, being ordained, or in this case I should say anointed with the oil, but they finally had a formal public a ceremony of recognizing he was king. And some time has now passed here in chapter 13. It says here in verse 1, Saul reigned one year. And we had, when he had reigned two years over Israel, 
Notice those time frame. It's been two now two years over that he's been reigning over. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Mechmesh and the, in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his, his tent. Meaning, go back home. So Saul here, we see in the verse two verses of chapter 13, Saul was reigning for two years. And in that two years, remember, he had not, there was never a, a worldly government. There was no kingship. There was no uh, leader. There was no establishing of the infrastructure of, a, of a, a formal government. And in one of the things of a formal government is to establish a regular army, a regular force, because everything else prior to that was just voluntary. It was, it was one of those, those uh, uh, militia, all everyone just grabbed their, their, their tools from their sheds for doing, you know, the, the working of the land. So they had the picks and the, the, the picks and the axes and all these things that they used to provide for their families are now weapons. And so the militia just came and used that pickaxe themselves against their enemy. And everything formal, they just knew they had to come together and work together to make sure they push back the enemy and, and survive this thing. Well, now after two years, some structures come into place and we see that he formed out of, of, of the 300,000 that we saw previously, 3,000 men to be this former army to look. And he divided up into two camps, 2,000 I will lead and Jonathan, you will lead. Who's Jonathan? Well, this is Saul's son. And this is the first place in the scripture we see the mention of his son, Jonathan. And he will be a prominent and a wonderful part of 1 Samuel as we go through here. He will, he'll play a lot of things that we can learn from the character of Jonathan. But now here in this first time, Israel had a professional army and things are setting up and everything seems to be fine. We don't need all 300,000. We only just need 3,000. And Jonathan and I, we're going to be leaders. This should be great. <laughs> Look what happened in verse 3 and 4. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul in Gilgal. Now as you read through that, you think, okay, this is interesting. This is going through. How do we go from we finally formed something here and, and, and this young man, Jonathan, the son, who has 1,000 really to his, leader, his leadership over this 1,000, attacks the garrison of the Philistines. There's something in here in those scriptures that says that the Philistines were ready to attack the, the Hebrews. But obviously the Philistines, we know in the scriptures, we will continue to see as we read here through this chapter, the Philistines were always putting pressure and control over the people. They allowed the enemy to dwell with them. The enemy became very strong, the Philistines. And as long as Israel would kind of work cooperatively with them as leading and controlling, things seemed to be just fine, as we will see. But Jonathan, now since they have an army, they have a government, now they're trying to get an understanding that this is really their land. This was the land that God had given them. But again, they allowed the enemy to dwell and not kick it, all of them out like God had asked them to. Now they're still reaping from that, that sowing of that decision of not pushing out the enemy. And the Philistines heard that Jonathan, with these thousand or so, this, attacked one of their garrisons that must have been controlling that uh, Giba, that, that area that they were pushing them out. So what happened is the Philistines heard it. Saul blew the trumpet to let the land know that the enemy's coming and brewing here against. And he says, let the Hebrews hear. Now that's, okay, we can see we're tracking along that, but notice something that's interesting here. Now all of Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked. Saul didn't attack. It was Jonathan that attacked. 
The word got out that it was Saul who blew the, the thing and saying, all, let all the Hebrews know we're going to gather together here. We're going to probably need more than just the 3,000 that we have. And he says, oh, by the way, because of this, the word got out as Saul spread the word that it was really him that actually led the first fight against the Philistines. No, it wasn't. It was his son. And Israel had also become now to the Philistines an abomination. What does that mean, an abomination? It means it caused disgust and hatred against Israel because they did not stay in line. See, Jonathan was a remarkable military leader, we will find out. He repeatedly demonstrated the ability to lead successfully men into war and attack and be successful here. But all this did was waken up the big giant of the Philistines. By poking and pushing now, they're now causing a major problem. They woke up the, the Philistines, and Israel had enjoyed this peace of, of in living there for this period of time. As long as they were subject to the Philistines, they had peace. Everything would be fine as long as you take your place of subjection, of just being submissive to us. And just in the Philistines, the enemy says, I'm not going to mess with you as long as you stay in line. But here, Jonathan poked the bear. Because Jonathan says, we're no longer going to kowtow. We're no longer going to be subjective to the enemy. We're going to deal with the enemies that are coming against us and suppressing us and in slavery and, 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 and putting pressure. We're going to finally push back the enemy now. He felt emboldened to do that, it appears. But that just saw the Philistines say, wait, we're very disgusted with the fact and hated the fact that you were even rising up and you were, we, we actually thought you were okay neighbors. We were willing to deal with you Israelites. But as soon as the Israelites showed any boldness, any courage in their life, the enemy will always come to knock you back down. Anytime you rise up with courage, with strength, from God that says you can now conquer this enemy that is going on in your life, the spiritual enemy. Expect the enemy to come and slap you back down. It's called spiritual warfare, and it's real. It'll create all kinds of things going on in your, your head. Or in reality, people will allow literally who God, the enemy uses to come against God's people will rise up to come against you. And that's the principle, is it not? It's the same principle. It's a true spiritual principle in our lives. If we, we don't war against armies of the Philistines, no, but our enemies are principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts, wickedness of heavenly places. We see that written in Ephesians 6.12. When we deal with Things, darkness, things that are coming against us or in our lives and stuff. Expect the enemy to come against you. You will be an abomination. It will, it, the, 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 the darkness will rule up and is really it just it's going to hate you and it's going to be disgusted against you. And expect these things when you want to draw closer to the Lord and you want to push these dark things out of your life that are not of God. Expect a response. But the spiritual enemies have the same attitude as the Philistines. As long as we are weak, as long as we're subjected to our spiritual enemies, they don't mind us at all. We seem to be just fine. Everything seems to be really good. Nothing's happening. Everything's going really well. Don't, don't mess with the, the cart. You know, don't flip the car, don't mess with anything, don't, don't say, everything's really going peacefully right now. Even though there are things that are not right, you have to deal with those. You just can't not deal with them. But as soon as we show some boldness and courage against the Lord's enemies, 
Our spiritual enemy considers us an abomination. If peace with the devil is more important to you than victory in the Lord, you will often be defeated and subjected. It's never good for us to try to find peace with the devil, peace with the enemy, over having victory with the Lord. It always will lead to defeat. So we find ourselves here in this fortress, this Gibeah, also known as Gibeah. It was destroyed. uh, Historically, we know from uh, archaeological digs and those things that we can see and the historians see that it was destroyed, this, this place, and Saul then took that place and, and actually recreated and made it his palace and fortress uh, from a history perspective at this place where uh, they went against the Philistines. But it's interesting the fact that Saul plainly took credit for Jonathan's bold attack on the garrison of the Philistines. Why is that? No, because it tells you a sign, an early sign of the other things of the heart and the character of Saul, his own sense of insecurity, the need to be recognized, the need to be noted of accomplishments, and, the, and all of these things are rising up. So evil over all, he will not allow his associates, even his own sin, to, his son, to recognize the credit. He needed to drink in the praises of people. It's very dangerous as a man or a woman to be looking and drinking in the attentions of man. Because it it puts you in a very bad position because it shows a character of insecurity and your security and your identity has to be in Christ. Not your accomplishments. Not your looks. Not your wealth, not your physical abilities. Our security in our, in our in recognizing who we are and, and fulfilled and completed is in Christ, in Christ alone. Look what happens here. We see the fact that in verses 3 through 5, or actually one, one through four here, is he was spiraling down with a pride problem. He had a spiraling down with a pride problem, and it came to light all the way through here to verse, uh, to verse five. Now we're going to see him spiraling down in unbelief. And unbelief makes a man very impatient. And we will see what happens. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 Chariots. <laughs> that's, that's a massive army infrastructure right there. Can you imagine 30,000 tanks showing up? 30,000 howitzers, whatever, equivalent today. I mean, we're talking, these were the tanks coming in with great force. And 6,000 horsemen. They were, they were all in some vehicles right there, man. Back in the day, it was horses. But today, we would say there was 6,000 vehicles, right? all loaded up with people, right? And people as the sand, there were so many, it's like you couldn't count them. It was just so many like the sand, which is on the seashore of the, in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash and the east of the Beth Evan. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, I can imagine. Then the people hid in caves, and thickets, and rocks, and holes, and pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. All those who stayed with him were trembling, but stayed. So imagine here, the Philistines are now gathering together their army. Not 3,000, but look at it. We're talking innumerable, but just the 30,000 chariots alone. The 6,000 horsemen. This is power. 
And they were very angry at the Israelites for rising up and trying to push them out and, uh, at that garrison. But Jonathan was, was bold enough to launch this initial attack against the Philistines. But what happened to the army? <laughs> they took off running in fear. I mean, they're like, like little animals running into whatever they can find naturally in any crevice or any bush, anything to just keep out from the view of the Philistines that were coming. That's fearful. And the ones who did stay, they were trembling. They understood what was happening here. They understood what, what, the, what, what this poking of the bear was waking up. This must have been one of the most lowest points of Israel's right here. Probably many of them thought, what we really need is a king. That's what they asked for. We really need a king, just like all the nations. A king who would solve all of our problems and we're going to have a great, much better if we just get a king. Or, in, in, in later, or a new king. But again, let's get a king and everything will be better for us and we'll have peace. Now the fact that they have a king, the problems are still there, but now even worse. We often think things will fix problems when we, but they really won't by thinking they can trust in man to fix the problems versus God. So as for Saul, what did he do? He didn't run. He stayed right there in Gilgal. Saul's position as king was confirmed in Gilgal. He wasn't leaving here. This is where I was confirmed. I'm king. I'm not moving. He'd been still there for months after this, the confirmation and the, big, the, the public announcement. He stayed there for months. Many times people will live in their reliving their glory days when everything was just going so well and they'll just live there and always talk about the past and talk about the past and never talk of what God is doing or not doing right now in their lives today. <laughs> but Samuel recognized and confirmed me as king. What's going on here? Why are people leaving me? Why are they scattering? Why are they taking off? Because they feared. There was unbelief. And we will see even impatience by Saul. I mean, they honored Saul as king, but they were really frightened by the reality of what was facing them. <laughs> What's better? It's better to have trembling followers than no followers at all. <laughs> You know, it's, he's in a very bad position here. So what happens in verse 8? Then he waited seven days. According to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Wait a minute. Saul. Your unbelief here. Your impatient here is going to cost you this spiraling down. You started, your pride was where you're starting. That, 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 that led to really a lot of unbelief in your life. And a lot of things you're saying and doing here are not good and are not right. And now you're going to have a position where you know, as king, you cannot be the priest. You cannot be sacrificing to God. That is not your position. That is not what God called you. And Samuel said, I'm the one that's to do this and bring this sacrifice to God to go into battle. And you are to wait seven days. And what does he do? At, after seven days, Samuel wasn't there on the seventh day. He immediately panicked out of fear, out of unbelief. And with pride. 
Pride is always, always, always the, the underlining. When you see a man making bad decisions, running, doing whatever he wants to do, impatient, got to have it, unbelief, always pride is the basis. They think they can do whatever they want to do with their lives. And what happens here, he makes a very grave decision here. Because all was in Gilgal for, uh, yes, for months. And he was pressing in this current crisis. And he's seeing people scattering and going every different direction. And as a leader, he started panicking with unbelief. What is happening? I'm not, I don't have control. I'm not in control. But I need to get control. And I have to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to this kid. Give me the sacrifice. I'm going to do the burnt offering. I'm going to do the peace offering. We're going to make sure we get God involved with this. Saul, 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 your, your pride, your unbelief, you're not strong in the Lord at all because you don't tell God what you're going to do. And you don't tell God what he's going to do. God, you will. You, you've got to come now. I'm, I, I, I'm doing a burnt offering. I'm doing a, person, a peace offering. I'm doing all these things for you, God. That means you've got to show up here. And do what I want you to do. That is a very dangerous path you go down there, Saul. And it's going to cost you and everybody around you because of that pride. But Saul didn't see it. Saul didn't see it. What, is it? what happened? Samuel told you. It's not like you didn't know. Samuel has to preside over these sacrifices. He will make sure the people are spiritually ready to go to battle and deal with the enemies if you would do it God's way. That means you have to be patient. That means you have to believe in God, that he's in control and he can work these things through even while you don't see it. That you have no strength, you're not, you're not as powerful and as, as, as perfect as you are, thinking just because you have a title of a king, that doesn't make you, that, that pride is going to bring you down. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation he's having with his troops? Think about it. He's, as you spiral down, and you get very prideful, you get unbelief, you get impatient, you start trying to take control, things get spiraling down, you really start having increase in anxiety. Anxiety will be a number one thing. If you ask that, Saul, what's happening with your dreaming, how you sleep, and I am filled with anxiety. You brought that upon yourself. Because you're outside the will of God. You didn't. You, you were supposed to wait for Samuel. He 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 could have just trusted God, trusted God's prophet who speaks for God in giving direction and gave direction to him. But you can imagine, he's a leader. You've been around where you've seen leaders play this out, where Saul is explaining to his people, talking to the troops. Man, we're going into battle against the Philistines. Yes, I know they have chariots. I know they have more men. I know they, you can't even count them. They have better swords. They have better spears. They have iron. They're very sophisticated. They have technology, things that we don't have. have. And we're just got the, the you know, you're... you're Bob, why didn't you bring the, the hoe with you? I know you have a big hoe in, in, in that barn you could have brought to use as a weapon. Why are you using the small thing? But he's sitting here giving a pep talk. You can imagine what that's going to happen here. So we have to trust God to make a quick attack before they can be organized. We gotta, can't wait for Samuel. And let's go strike him and let's make a deal and let's make this happen. And, and whatever happens, we're going to do it because we need to get out there. We need to get this done before anything gets worse. And as the days dragged on, seven day came, Samuel wasn't there. 
The troops started losing confidence. Saul, we don't see this. Samuel's not even showing. They start scattering. It gets overwhelming. Saul felt he was in a lot of trouble. And when that happens, that's when you start seeing, I've got to get God to do this for me. Ultimatums, all kinds of vows, anything. People will start, even in his case, doing something he knew he wasn't supposed to do. He started to bring the burnt offerings. He plainly dis, disobeyed Samuel and God's word. Saul was the king. It was not the priest. Only priests were to offer the sacrifices. You know, it's interesting. If you go back, I ponder, I was like, okay, historically, how many times has this kind of thing happened? And we know historically shows how dangerous it is to combine religion and civic authority. God would not allow the kings of Israel to be priests and the priests to be kings. We see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah tried to do the work of priests and God struck him with leprosy. <laughs> God means what he says. Don't do these things. But unfortunately, out of fear, out of panic, out of not knowing what else to do, God did something, Saul did something clearly simple. He never seeked after God directly and said, God, help me. God, help me because Samuel was supposed to come and let us know and do the sacrifice. He didn't come. God, help me. What do we want me to do? He not once turned to God because he didn't have a relationship with God. Verse 10. Now we see a spiral down from that unbelief that impatience, it always gets worse. Now he spirals down into deception. He becomes delusional now. It, and now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. Oh, isn't that always the case? <laughs> oh, lessons learned, man. And Saul went out to meet him. What are you going to do, Saul? Keep him from coming into the camp to smell the barbecue? What? And he met, and he, and he might greet him, right? And Samuel said, what have you done? He asked a question. He knew exactly what he had, had done. He could smell it. He knew it. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, oh, here comes the excuse, and that you did not come, okay, they're shifting blame on both two people, within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, that's right, Saul, you said, not God said. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled that feeling misled you. I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Thinking on your feelings, Saul, has just cost you big time. So Saul decided to perform the sacrifice not more than an hour before Samuel arrived. And if he had trusted God and just waited that one more hour, just waited, just wait, just trust God and God's direction through Samuel. If you would have just trusted and not lean on your own understanding, Saul, if you wouldn't have trusted in your own understanding, not lean on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. God, I acknowledge you. I know I'm not supposed to do this. I'm, I'm king. I'm not a priest. I acknowledge this is truth. He knew this. If he just trusted God and waited one more hour, how Different things could have been. Saul, 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 Saul. The last moments of waiting are usually the most difficult 
and they powerfully tempt us to make matters into our own hands. When you're at that last moment, that last, I, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. I, I don't see it. I don't this. I don't this. I, I don't. I, I, we have to do something. We got to go. When you start thinking that way, because you don't say it, because you know you're not supposed to say it, because that doesn't sound Christian-like. But you think it. Don't be deceived. Don't be, have deception here. Like Saul here, as he's spiraling down, he's into deception now. He's shifting blame. He's blaming everyone around him. Saul really overstepped his bounds. <laughs> Literally, the Hebrew says that Saul wanted to bless Samuel. As a priest blessed the people, Saul wanted to bless Samuel by blessing the people here. Because Saul really saw him as priest. Once your power gets to your head and the pride is there and you don't have a relationship with God because you've got cloudy now, you're not even hearing. Even people, godly people around you are telling you something's not right. You're not going to hear it because the pride is there. The unbelief is setting in. The deception and impatience are setting in. Control and wanting what you want and all these things. He thinks he was right. He thought he was really doing God's work. He was really thinking he was blessing Samuel. Every, he's such a deception here. But what did, what did Samuel? Can you imagine Samuel coming and he sees, he smells, he knows what is happening. <laughs> what does Samuel say? We're looking from the mouth of this man, this king. He asked him one question. What have you done? All Samuel wanted to hear is confession and repentance. That's all Samuel wanted to open it. Just literally, he just needed to hear confession and repentance from that king, from that man. But Saul's response was classic. Classic example of excuse making and failure to trust God. I mean, line upon line. He was shifting blame and everybody else did this and did this and I didn't show up and yet uh, blaming the people. All while all he was doing was Saul was making his sin worse and worse and worse. Worse with excuses. I had to do something. I had to impress the people. I had to get the people's support. I had to do all this. <laughs> if you put it into people's talks today in, in, in elections and stuff, it's like Saul is saying, I need a positive response in the polling data. What is the polling data saying? Did I say it just right? I mean, it's just nothing new under the sun today. Samuel, it's your fault. You were the spiritual leader, and you didn't show. You didn't do what I wanted you to do, and when you were going to do it, and all this stuff. And even when you said in seven days, and you didn't do it, he, it didn't have any, he didn't have any show mercy. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't show grace to Samuel. Did you once ask Samuel the fact that something really seriously stopped you for him to be able to come there? I mean... It doesn't negate the fact that you are shifting the fact that you didn't show up and you know you're not supposed to be sacrificed because it was his job to do that. And it, again, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. <laughs> he knew he needed God's help to deal with the Philistines. And if Saul would have just simply obeyed and trusted God right where he was at, the Lord would have taken care of the enemy. Would have taken care of the problem. Saul could have made supplication to the Lord in a number of ways. He could have cried out to the Lord for the whole, for the whole nation and just cried out and cried out. Got all the people to crowd together just pray and cry out. No. I felt compelled. 
just seemed like the right thing to do. And I couldn't wait any longer. I had to get out of the situation. <laughs> so all compelled, felt compelled. He, he was not supposed to be ruled by his feelings. He didn't have to sin through how he, he felt like sinning. It wasn't like he, he purposely said, I'm going to go do this in sin. He just misled himself right into sin. Verse 13. What happens after deception? After deception leads to a spiral down of foolishness. It gets worse. And it says, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Oh, man, that must have been a thump. But now, this is a bad but, not a good but. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God had a calling. God had called you a commandment to do, to do something, and you, you literally just walked away with what God said to do. You have done foolishly. There's no stronger phrase in there is than this right here. You have done foolishly. That is a very strong word in the Hebrew. It's not like he was not intelligent. He was very intelligent, I'm sure. It wasn't a silly kind of thing, a moment. You know, I was playing around. I, I was just kidding. No, it's not what he's talking here. He called it out as the Bible speaks of the fool as someone morally and spiritually lacking. You have done foolishly. And despite all the excuses, all the reasons, all the blaming of someone else, the bottom line is Saul. This is the bottom line. I mean, Samuel put it as plainly as can be. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. The, the, God said, this is what I want you to do, and you did the opposite. Foolish. Look what you lost, Saul. Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. By you doing what you wanted to do, the way you wanted to do it, because you felt compelled? You just lost everything. It's interesting as we continue. It's not like he said, pack your bags and get out of here. He literally ruled 20 years in a position that he had no power and no future. 20 years. He would reign another 20 years before God transitioned him out. But during that whole 20 years, he had no future. His lineage would not. Remember, as a king, his kids, his sons would come into the kingdom and replace him and replace him and replace That all ended then. His sons never had a chance to be king. Because God said no. Because of his foolishness. Because of his pride. It would never be the same. Because of the, because of the end of his kingdom was certain. Right then and there it was marked. Boop. And the Lord sought. See, let me tell him. And the Lord has sought for himself a man God had already told Samuel, I already now selected out a man who will be the king. Who will what? Will be 
a man after his God's own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people. God had already, as soon as Saul made the decision, the foolish decision, God had already picked out and said, you're not going to get the blessing. You're not going to get the forever moment here of having uh, your, your lineage from you and all the way down. No longer. You know why? Because Saul was not a man after Israel's heart. He was all about the image and prestige and the things that man looked at and he feared for and insecurities and all the, these feelings that he was dealing with. But God will not, now will give an Israel a man after his own heart, one surrendered heart to God. A man after God's heart honors the Lord. He's enthroned by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Has a repentant, a soft, repentant heart. He was not prideful. That is a man after God's own heart. Loves other people. It's not about him and what he wants. He loves God's people. That's a man after God's own heart. Loves God's people. And God was looking for a, this kind of a man. In fact... We find, even today, God's still looking for men and women after his own heart. Are you? Are we? Am I? Am I after God's own heart? Do I desire God's will for me and just do what God wants me to do for him? Or am I coming up with all kinds of excuses why I can't serve and do God's way in God's place where he's planted me and be content and filled with his peace and his joy of serving him in that way see he's going to raise up a man named David and David was not a perfect man. But he was a man after God's own heart. If David had some of our sins, then we can have his heart. We can love and pursue God with the kind of focus and passion David had, even though he was not perfect. Verses 15 and 18. Then Samuel rose and went up to Gil, from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with him remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Ophrah and to the land of Sheral. And another company turned to the road of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the, to the road of the border of, that overlooks the valley of Sebaum toward the wilderness. So here Samuel left, probably knowing that the announcement of judgment on Saul was an invitation to, to repentance, and probably know that Saul was not going to repent, and he didn't repent. And about all the men, only 600 left out of the 300,000 that was initially. He cut it down to 3,000 and only 600 stayed. Philistines had a huge army. 600 wasn't going to do it. That's why I think Saul was panicking. He's down to 600. And those were guys were trembling. And so what did Philistines do? Don't send in the whole army. Just send a few raiders. We could deal with 600 people. We don't need to send in a whole army for this thing. Why? Because they knew they had the technology 
technological superiority over the enemy. Look at what happens. Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his um, mattock, uh, his axe, and his sickle, and the charge of for a sharpening was a pim. A pim, what is a pim? A pim is about two-thirds of a shekel weight. For the plowshares and the mattocks, mattocks being a pick axe, they believe probably, and the forks and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was, was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the past of Michmash. Michmash was a, a Benjamin city. It was lying on near Ramah, which is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So they kind of get a picture where they're at there. But again, these are farmers. They had to go to the Philistines, right? Because they were, they were trading food and all kinds of services. And they didn't have blacksmiths for Israel. They weren't allowed to have them. Only the, only the Philistines had them. And you had to go to the Philistines and get them sharpened to go into the next season of harvest and, and doing the woods. So they made sure they weren't weapons. The Philistines were smart enough. They didn't sharpen them to be too sharp. Just enough to do your work, but not so much for to be weapons. You couldn't have spears, you couldn't have swords, anything. They made sure those blacksmiths weren't going to allow that to happen. But this is what they had to deal with. This is what they were going into war with. They were not obviously prepared to deal with these things. Especially against the military technology of the Philistines. Why? Because they were from the seas. They were able to go inter uh, interact with the Grecians and others who had this technology and experience and capabilities and they brought that back to the land and used that against uh, for their benefit against to rule over the Israelites. But again, if you study this, you can see there's nothing new under the sun. You see it around the nations. One nation is one against another enemy, but they'll take the technology to make them stronger to be able to go. Look at North Korea with the nuclear capability. Now Iran, nuclear capability. It goes on and on. They got that from another enemy so, so that they can be powerful to be able to conquer and come against people. Nothing new. I mean, it's bad enough to be outnumbered so badly. Now we see God allowed the Philistines to have a huge technological advantage over the Israelites. Bottom line is here, as we close, the only way the Israelites could ever win against this enemy was to come back and to trust in God for everything. The only way we're going to conquer the enemy within a spiritual enemy is to trust God for everything. Father, we thank you again for your word this evening, Lord. As we open up your word, I pray and I thank you for illuminating your word to us to learn the things you're putting on our hearts, Lord, in our minds of 